Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Case of democracy, very good. G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage for 2023. Isn't it nice to be able to say that? I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and joining me as usual is the political scientist, Dr. Maria Taflaga, Senior Lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations. How are you, Maria? Very well, Mark. How are you? I'm 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 great, and I'm really excited about uh, not just what we're doing today, but I guess a whole another year of democracy sausage. So it's going to be, uh, you know, going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to do a lot of good things, and each year I hope gets better than the last. So uh, everyone knows an aged sausage is the best sausage. <laughs> that's right, Ed. Ed sausage. Oh no, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> so. It's a great pleasure also to welcome back to the show for the first time in 2023, but not for the first time ever, uh, another ANU scholar turned Treasurer of Australia, no less, Dr. Jim Chalmers. Hi, Jim. Nice to see you, Mark and Maria. Thanks for having me back on. I promise you fewer uh, LeBron James references this time than last time. (laughs) Oh, that's true. I'd forgotten about that. There were a few of those. Although, you know, I remember, I, I don't know if I should go here, but I remember once when we were talking years ago uh, in a sort of through a third party and, um, you suggested that uh, I might be Googling NBL, NBA players' names. Uh, <laughs> but, in fact, my NBA uh, uh, sort Your of game uh, pedigree yep. goes, goes, goes back further than yours by <laughs> virtue of age, let me tell you. <laughs> anyway, look, uh, on to more serious matters. The world is obviously a pretty uncertain place after the last few years of pandemic chaos supply shortages, emergency stimulus measures, of course, weather catastrophes as well, and, and warfare. Uh, Jim, you've attempted to make uh, some sense of all of this um, and to talk about how we might be able to respond to the circumstances we now find ourselves in. And you've done this in a a new essay for the monthly magazine. I'm delighted to say uh, this essay, it's called Capitalism After the Crises, crises plural. Uh, I'm delighted to say we're discussing this on Democracy Sausage first. Um, So uh, that's that's, that's great for us. Thanks for uh, being with us. Um, the essay is quite a, uh, an optimistic contribution to the public debate um, 
and you talk about a number of the, the crises. I'd like to sort of tease out some of those things, some of the arguments that you put in the in the, in this essay. I thought I might first start by just asking you to develop or explain this concept of polycrisis. I think it might mm. be Adam Tooze's term, isn't That's it? That's it. Yeah, um, correct. But uh, yeah, just what, what what is polycrisis? Well, a polycrisis is Adam Tooze's way of saying um, when you have a lot of these big uh, turbulent events playing out at once in the world, uh, then the effect of those is greater than the sum of their parts. Um, and he is quite representative, as is uh, Rubini, who was the guy who predicted the financial crisis 15 years ago. Both of them Pretty together, well the only guy, I think, wasn't it? Pretty much. Yeah. And, and you know, famous for that, but now infamous, as I say in the essay, for being one of the most pessimistic about the conditions that the world confronts over the coming decade or so. And so together, and I refer to both of them in the piece, uh, I use them as a way of saying um, there is a lot of um, uh, turbulence, uh, uncertainty, uh, vulnerability that we're dealing with. Uh, but what makes me an optimist at the same time as I'm a realist about those challenges is I feel like this is our big chance to learn from these three crises we've had over the last 15 years, a global financial crisis, a pandemic, and now an inflation crisis around the world, uh, to try and learn from that. And the main thing I think we should learn from that is that for some time now we've pretended wrongly that we have to choose between our economic objectives and our social objectives. And in the process of making that false choice, we've actually satisfied neither of them particularly well over the last decade or so. So this is our big challenge and our big chance, as I say in the piece, uh, to learn from these three crises over a decade and a half. And I think the thing that we can learn is that we can nicely and neatly line up our economic objectives and our social objectives as a community, as a society, uh, and if we do that, uh, then we can grow not just out of this downturn that the world's uh, entering or, or in right now, uh, but just have something which is a bit more meaningful, you know, growth which is more meaningful, more inclusive, more sustainable. And also in the process of doing that, you know, renovating our economy, renovating our economic institutions, we can strengthen our democracy at the same time. Do you think that, um, you know, the time is finally right for this conversation? Because, you know, if I think back to the sort of uh, Rudd-Gillard-Rudd era, it seems like Labor was trying to have some of these conversations but wasn't really able to kind of connect. So where do you sort of see we're at in, in, that, in relation to that? I think you're right to acknowledge, Maria, that, um, you know, this is not the first attempt to make sense of uh, what's, uh, been happening in the world since the global financial crisis. And there's a there's a symmetry in the sense that um, 14 years ago, almost to the day, uh, Kevin Rudd wrote for the same magazine a piece about what were the early lessons from the global financial crisis when it came to, uh, you know, the, the, the economic model. Um, and, and Wayne Swan wrote a piece in 2012 about what uh, the kind of uh, entrenched powers in our economy meant for our ability to grow in a more inclusive way. And so there is a, there have been attempts you know, around the world, in Australia, I'm not pretending to be the first to say, um, you know, we might be able to learn from these, uh, from these uh, difficulties. Uh, but what I am trying to do is to say um, each of these three crises have been very different, but where they are common is that they've made our communities and our people more vulnerable than we want them to be. Uh, and so how do we build a sense of resilience uh, in communities and in our national economy? And I think the best way to do that is to say, okay, um, uh, we've chased economic 
objectives at the expense of social objectives. We've achieved neither. How do we line them up? And where that matters most, I think, everyone will have their own view about this, but if you fast forward, if you look back on the life of this government or this period of time in Australian history at some point down the track, I think the things that will determine whether we've succeeded or failed is have we got the energy transition right? Have we found a way to make technology work for people, not against them, particularly in the workplace? Uh, and have we found a way to make sure that investment, whether it's public investment from the Commonwealth or levels of government or private investment, have we found a ma- way to make sure that that's flowed to areas that, that you know that we care about, that our national economic objectives, housing, energy, uh, critical minerals and advanced, manu- advanced manufacturing, data and digital, have we found a way to do that? And we've got the reason again, and I'm, I'm really quite pleased that Mark began talking about the kind of optimism, pessimism, pessimism spectrum, because the reason that I am so optimistic is I think we do have a really big chance here, not just because we've got a new government, but because we, I feel like we've got a bit of a different mindset uh, about not just about things I care about, well-being and some of the other themes in the essay, but we've got, a, I think, an opportunity to, here to say, okay, um, uh, there is a, um, there's a window of opportunity here to try and make our capitalism uh, something which more closely aligns with our values. So, And this is deeper than the, the sort of somewhat cynical kind of law of politics where they say never waste a crisis, you know, which is really about sort of a bit more tactical than than than, than deep and, and and long term what you're saying is that uh, these crises expose weaknesses past crises also expose weaknesses in the response to those those shocks uh, and we can we can look back and see them and we can learn and you make the point in the essay about uh, the black saturday bushfire disaster and a symmetry you see i think you mm-hmm. call it the dreadful symmetry you see with the global financial crisis or the great recession as they call it in the northern hemisphere um but i think what's really fascinating uh, given your role as treasurer is you you then go on to say that from that uh from from that whole process we we, we see, like from bushfires, for example, we see that uh, you know, practices change. We learned from mm. it. Um, perhaps you can talk to that part of the essay. Um, but you don't see the same sort of learning in economic policy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And 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 that's a kind of a neater version of what I'm trying to say in the it essay. Wasn't that cheap, it wasn't that cheap. Well, what I'm trying to say is, yeah, we had, we had Black Saturday um, 14 years ago. And um, what we learned – you know, in in confronting ways, was that some of the ways that we deal with bushfires uh, made people less safe rather than more safe. And so, by the time bl- the Black Summer rolled around, uh, we had adapted. You know, we had there was a royal commission in Victoria. We learned a bunch of lessons. We changed the way we respond. So, to so fires. This, sorry, sorry to interrupt. You. This yeah. is about things like whether you should stay in your home, how yep. long a a bushfire Precisely. took to pass over, how yep. long the radiant heat was deadly, and so forth. We learned those kinds of things, yep. and we were able to change the the public warnings to people. Right? Totally. Yeah. And and what I try and say in the essay is, you know, there hasn't been an equivalent uh, when it comes to our economy. You know, you mm. can think about, you know, I, I was. You know, proud to have worked on some of the ways we responded to the global financial crisis, mm. and you know the, the the G20 and others worked on ways to different to to regulate our financial sector differently, and so there you know there were some changes made, but broadly the way that we thought about budgets and thought about the economy has been pretty similar for most of my adult life. 
uh, if not all of it. And so uh, ever since I was knocking around the the ANU in the early two thousands, um, and so yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying trying to say if 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 these three crises that we've been through, if they were a bushfire, we would have we would have responded differently. Um, and I use this word picture from a from a, a Greek philosopher about um, uh, who said that no no man steps in the same river twice because it's not the same river and he's not the same man. Leaving aside the the gendered language of ancient Greece, um, <laughs> you know, there's something wonderful in that because that's how I feel about these crises are all different and we've changed as well. Uh, but the thing that can be common about it is what have we learned about ourselves? What have we learned about what we can do differently and how do we make people less vulnerable? Well, what have we learned about ourselves in your view? Well, one of the things I think I, – I have, a, I have a, a, a personal obsession with this, which is, you know, people it's, – it's partly a function of COVID, but I've noticed it more broadly as well, is that people have a – broader view of their well-being you know obviously primarily centrally uh, they care about their financial security not I don't not pretending otherwise um, but the way that we measure the thing way that we think about the things that we value in our own lives I think is is broad you know and 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 my obsession with well-being is partly founded on on that you know this sense of our health and our well-being and our families and and all of that. And the way we think about the economy is so, I think, unnecessarily narrow. Uh, and and so I've tried to broaden that out and, you know, at some kind of political risk over the years. Um, well, we saw this this debate, this this difference between you and the government uh, in the earlier days of the early days of the um, COVID crisis, where there was this kind of separation that some people were making between the economy economic policy and health policy, and, and you were in opposition at the time, but Labor was arguing none of these things are inextricably yeah. linked. They're, yeah. they're two sides of the same coin and they yeah. cannot be separated. You can't have a yeah. functioning economy. You can't protect the economy if people are unwell and, yeah. and so forth. Yeah, totally. And and the shorthand of that is you can't have a uh, you know a healthy economy without healthy people and healthy communities. That's a That's the kind of... Shorthand version of that, but also, you know, we've I've been talking for a while now about how do we measure what matters in addition to, mm. you know, some of the usual traditional ways that we measure the economy. I've I've been interested for a long time in uh, how we measure well-being and progress and and all of those things. Taking um, some criticism for it as well, as yeah. you note in the, uh, yeah. in the essay, and yeah. I have a little cheeky flick at uh, <laughs> at my predecessor on the on the way through uh, yeah, yoga mats it, and so forth about yoga mats and incense. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I I genuinely think people have a have a broad, more encompassing view of what progress and prosperity and success and well being looks like, and I'm I'm trying to ref, I'm trying to reflect that. Those things have always been hard to put on balance sheets, uh, which is one of the reasons they're not there. Um, but also, I suppose the the discipline of economics, the the dismal science, as some people call, it, <laughs> uh, has as you've already been saying, has been quite sort of entrenched in in its view about certain principles and certain technical terms and descriptions. Um, I noticed, for example, that uh, the governor of the Reserve Bank, I know you're not going to criticise him, treasurers don't criticise their their governors of the Reserve Bank, but um, Phil Lowe, Philip Lowe has recently said something along the lines of, I'm not quoting him directly here, but something along the lines of, um, you know, workers may need to take a pay cut to protect the economy, and this has elicited a response, I think quite a reasonable response from people saying, well, what do you think the economy is if it isn't, the workers. I suppose that does mm. make a rather good point, doesn't it? 
Well, I mean, leaving uh, leaving Phil out of it for the for the reasons you've predicted. You know, I think um, you know we the prime minister talks about the economy working for people, not the other way around. That's his way of saying. Um, you know, what I feel too, which is we need to care about the people-facing part of the economy. Uh, and uh, you can generate a beautiful set of spreadsheets uh, that say that the economy is travelling well, but if people don't feel like their living standards are being lifted and they have a sense of security and, um, uh, you know, well-being broadly, then that's not – the economy is not delivering as we need it to. Uh, and when it comes to wages, I mean, what you know, if – one of the things I care most about in the economy is how do we get wages growing? They haven't grown very strongly for the best part of a decade. Um, and we're starting to see some starting to see a bit, the beginnings of that, which I'm pleased about. But um, it's being eaten by inflation. Yeah, it's being – yeah. And so um, I think wages are the best way to think about how the economy delivers for people. If people who work hard can't provide for the people that they love and get ahead – uh, then uh, the economy is not working for them. But inflation, of course, I mean, it's obvious. We just yep. discussed it. It, it. it it can undo all of that. I mean, you can yep. have you can have wage growth going up, but if it's not keeping place with inflation, then the real pur- pur- purchasing power of wages is going backwards. Yeah, that's right. And that's where we are at the moment, right? That's right. And that's why we need to see inflation moderate and we need to see this responsible wages growth, sustainable wages growth continue. And when those two things cross over again, then we'll get the real wages growth that's been missing since, uh, well, for some time now. Let's take a quick break there and be back in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, when we uh, went to the break, we were just talking about wages and inflation and so forth. I mean, it, it, it reminds me uh, also that you, you sort of cover this, uh, this, uh, this subject as well in the essay, this idea about how we understand or how economics understands markets and economic policies around markets. Now, I think we've sort of touched on this a bit already, but it seems to me you're, you're arguing that there are inbuilt biases into the way, into the things we can measure about markets that, that almost predispose certain outcomes. This goes to your point about well-being, I guess, and about, about broader and longer-term outcomes from policy decisions, yeah. how you can configure economic policy in such a way that it delivers, that it, the yield is a long-term yield for, mm-hmm. for social and economic well-being rather than just, um, you know, sort of starting with, I guess, the neoliberal principle that markets always know best. Yeah. Markets themselves contain uh, predis- 
predisposed outcomes. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I don't think we're choosing between markets or not not markets. I think that uh, uh, what we're really choosing between is good markets and bad markets, and I try and deal with that in the essay. You know, if you think about um, so, so my belief is if you strengthen the economy, that can make a positive contribution to strengthening our democracy. In order to strengthen our economy, you need to build the scaffolding around good decisions. So measuring the right things is a big part of that. So we're tracking progress against the things we care about. Our economic institutions are a big part of that. That's why I'm renovating the Reserve Bank. I'm going to renovate the Productivity Commission. I've got an intergenerational report, depoliticized, more regularly delivered, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and uh, and we've got to think about our markets. We've got to make sure our markets are transparent and consistent and well designed, so they get the kinds of outcomes that we need as well. And this doesn't; those three things, none of them kind of capture the front page of the of the newspaper day to day. And the outcomes are what matter most, and how people experience the economy and all those things that we were talking about a moment ago. They matter most, but the scaffolding around it matters too. And you know, at some future point when I'm finished in this gig, what I would like to leave behind is a more robust um, uh, set of institutions which which um, encourage good outcomes, good decisions, good outcomes, and measurement uh, institutions and markets are part of that. So I guess I mean, like that's I mean that's a very good point that you that you kind of raised there, and and I suppose I'm kind of curious. I mean, what do you think that government needs to measure that it doesn't actually? Um, now, you talk a lot about, uh, I suppose, the role of evidence in, in terms of uh, policy delivery and I suppose where do, where do labour values sort of fit into that picture? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's a labour value or not, but there's a, I think one of the things that people have been positive about when it's come to this newish government is the sense that we take governing seriously. You know, we're not... Um, you know, we're not perfect, but we don't spend every day trying to play a political angle. I think that's one of the things people have said that they that they respect about us in, a, in our first eight months or so. And part of that is making sure that the decisions that we take are well-founded. And in order for those decisions to be well-founded, um, we need to have a way to measure and track progress in all the ways that we've been talking about. So if you think about the, the measuring what matters statement that I'll deliver uh, probably around the middle of the year, uh, what what people call the well-being budget, uh, that will go beyond. You know, in addition to GDP, wages, growth, unemployment rate, all the things that I think are good measures, but insufficient on their own. Uh, and it will go to things like uh, environmental degradation. It will go to things like uh, mental health outcomes. Uh, it will go to things like. Uh, a broader sense of living standards, you know, and the OECD has given us a bunch of um, uh, measures in there in the way that they do it, and that's a good start. Uh, and so we'll build on that, come up with an Australian way of doing it. You talked before about the thing, the way the the measures are designed, uh, and in and I guess some of the outcomes. And you say that some of these things, some of the policy approaches that you're bringing, to, don't necessarily make for headlines or for front pages. They have in the past, in the in the in the opposite sense, in that um, we saw through the period since the eighties, really, um, the application of market logic on a whole lot of government policy areas or areas of government responsibility. The logic was stated often, explicit, was that markets are more efficient than governments. That the allocation of resources is logical when 
the you know the profit motive is there and the, mm-hmm. the markets find the most efficient way to deliver those services. Yeah. It seems to me what you're saying now is that's been shown not to be true. If, if not uh, wholly untrue, then just simply not the full story. I think that's what markets at their best do. Um, and uh, an ideal market um, is, you know, transparent. Um, it is, you know, robust, leads to the sorts of outcomes that we want to see. Um, and, you know, a lot of your or some some part of your listeners and certainly some part of, of the ANU and, uh, you know, they will, fo- they will follow um, an academic called Mazzucato. Uh, mm, Mariana. She, yeah. yeah. And f- I think she's one of the most important economists in the world right now. I agree. And a lot of what I read in her work, uh, you see in the sorts of things that I'm talking about because um, what she's talking about is, is markets which work in a way where there's an element of collaboration and co-investment, but designing the right kind of markets – that help us achieve our, our missions. You know, and she's and our- also talking about accountability for public dollars, yeah. I suppose. I mean, yeah. she made the point very early on in the pandemic, um, you know, that the AstraZeneca uh, um, vaccine, for example, was developed uh, through Oxford University. You can trace its inception to seeding of public, significant amount right. of public money, right? right? And, right. And, and, and yet it becomes a kind of a private thing, as is so often the case with, with pharmaceuticals and a number yep. of other medical and other scientific developments. Yeah. Uh, and so she's talking about, you know, this needs to be recognised and, the, and the, the public ownership, the public right yep. to these developments needs to be, needs to be recognised as well. Totally. But, but equally, I mean, if you think about, if you put yourself in my shoes, you know, we've got a budget which is not in perfect nick. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of constraints. They've got a whole bunch of things we want to do, particularly after being in opposition for a decade. There's a lot of um, pent-up ambition uh, and not all of it is cheap. Um, and so you need to work out, okay, if we want to achieve these objectives, you know, these big shifts, you know, cleaner energy, the way our industrial base is changing, you think about – um, uh, uh, you know, data and digital, all these ways that our, our economic base is changing. If you care about influencing that and nobody's talking about going back to a kind of 1950s model of, you know, picking winners and throwing hmm. big, big grants at whole industries, uh, you have to be, you have to think creatively and innovatively about how you achieve these objectives and what um, Mazzucato writes about and what I think about is we've got a big co-investment agenda you know, rewiring the nation fund, a national reconstruction fund, clean energy finance corporation, housing Australia future fund, which is about leveraging this private investment uh, into areas that we care about, and 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 that is, I think, a pretty useful model. One of the things, and I'm sure you're interested in this too, Maria, mm. um, uh, that I note from the essay is uh, the emphasis you put on this, and you've said it here today, the emphasis you put on kind of democratic renovation, rejuvenation, mm. repair, however you want to describe it, as as part of your remit as an, as, as the econ- chief economic minister. And I think that's really interesting. And you do see we've talked a bit already about the, the fact that these things are are interwoven. They can't yep. be separated. Yeah. Um, in in that frame, I'm interested in, in uh, you, you talk about institutional uh, um, Renovation, is that the term you use or yeah. repair? Uh, yeah. you, I presume you're talking about within your own portfolio. You, you mentioned, you know, the Productivity Commission, the Reserve Bank, things like that. 
Are there, do we need to think more broadly even than that, though, in terms of- Yeah, I think the Anti-Corruption Commission is part of it Yeah, right. in, uh, in uh, Mark Dreyfus's portfolio. Uh, and really a lot of colleagues are thinking along these kinds of lines. I, I guess what we're trying to do is we're trying to do away with this unnecessary distinction between economy, society, democracy. Um, you know, you guys have written about and thought about for a long time, you know, what is happening with this kind of- sense of, you know, declining sense of trust in public institutions mm-hmm. and in our democratic institutions in particular. And, and if you look, about, you look around the world at where um, uh, inverted commas strongmen get elected, it's typically there is an economic precursor or, or foundation or influence on that. And so how economies perform, how inclusive or otherwise they are, that has a bearing on the nature of democracy as well. And so my job in my portfolio is work out what contribution I can make to strengthening our democracy, strengthening our economy is part of that and the type of growth, how inclusive and sustainable it is, but also making sure these institutions are the best that they can be in the same way that Mark Dreyfus with the Anti-Corruption Commission and others are are performing a similar task in their areas. And that means that a number of things that people associate with what governments do for them need to make sure they deliver. Um, I, I notice Mark Butler's talking a lot at the moment about strengthening Medicare. Mm. Um, people see that. Australians, we know, regard Medicare as an absolutely crucial function of, of the Commonwealth Government. Yeah. Um, uh, same with higher education, same with a number of other things. I don't think you can get more fundamental than Medicare. Mm-hmm. Are, are your well-being indicators going to be granular in the sense of looking at things like homelessness? You know, you talk about mental health outcomes and the yeah. like. I mean, homelessness is is just such a blight on yeah. this country. And, of course, institutionalised poverty at the bottom end of the scale, people who are unemployed, uh, you know, all those sorts of things. Yeah. They, they, are, they are the things that really drag down the average, don't they? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we haven't finalised the the kind of final twenty or twenty five or whatever indicators will be in the in the measuring what matters statement in the middle of the year. But but homelessness is obviously a, a red hot chance to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have enough homes in this country. That's been a perennial challenge. Um, one of the reasons why I'm interested in this model is because you know we've got this huge advantage of these trillions of dollars in superannuation funds. We've got a willing investment community, states and territories, the building industry. I'm trying to work out how do we corral all of that into the housing accord, which means we build a bunch of houses uh, that are affordable uh, near where the jobs and opportunities are being created. So, so housing is a big part of our agenda. Uh, and it is, I think, one of the things that the, the outcomes there and the policy development there in housing uh, will greatly benefit from the kinds of ways we're rethinking the role of government in the economy. Now, I know you've got to go, um, so I just want to do a couple of quick things if I can. One of them is just, I suppose, to go back to this point about de- you know faith in democracy, confidence, trust, whatever. We're on the cusp of this voice referendum that is supposedly going to happen this year. Mm-hmm. It's a great opportunity for the country, but it, all, it is also, it seems to me, a moment of peril in the sense that if it doesn't, and I know you don't necessarily want to, you know, look at the glass half empty in this, in this, and I understand why. Mm. Neither do I particularly. But it seems to me that we know it's hard to get referendums up. You know, you have to get a majority of votes and a majority of states, and these things are hard. The record is not good. This is already facing uh, a degree of uh, blowback from a number of people. The story, in a sense, of uh, of, of the voice is being kind of written by misinformation uh, Mm. in a vacuum that Mm. has been left, it seems to me, by the government. Is this a mistake? 
Well, obviously, I don't. I don't think so. Um, but I recognise uh, that constitutional change is difficult in this country, uh, and um, you know we, uh, you know, we want to see this. The, the challenge for us is we want this constitutional change to be something led by the people, not necessarily by uh, politicians. politicians. Yeah. Um, and in doing that and in having a, a meaningful and powerful working group uh, of First Nations people uh, doing a lot of the, the design work, uh, inevitably that means uh, that people who don't want this referendum to succeed will hide behind an argument about detail. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, let's be honest about it. No, that is what we're uh, seeing. I agree. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so every day, I mean, we care deeply about this. Um, and every uh, – there wouldn't be a day that goes by where from the Prime Minister down right through the Cabinet and into the into our party room, you know, well, we're not thinking about what gives this the best chance of success. Um, but – um, you know, there's detail out there already. There'll be lots of detail between now and the referendum vote. The constant, the the referendum will be about the constitutional principles, and the parliament will determine the detail. Uh, and obviously, as the the campaign for it and the campaign against it evolves, we'll need to make sure we're calibrating it right. It's not easy. Um, but we're, those are some of the balances that we're trying to strike. I mean, isn't there a risk ultimately that um, if you if you leave leadership of the campaign to, um, you know, a, a, a disparate bunch of groups that you will kind of face this problem where your opponents will pick it off from the detail. So, you know, yeah. does, I presume the government have a, has a strategy to push this forward? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't uh, for a moment say that there isn't a role for leadership here and the Prime Minister is providing that leadership. Um I just think we give uh, it the best chance of success, learning from uh, the Republic referendum in the late 90s, which was, from my point, was devastating from my point of view, S sitting in the, watching the votes pile up in my community for no, you know, almost, you know. Uh, I, I take some comfort from the fact that to vote in that referendum, <laughs> you had to have been born in 1980 or 81 at <laughs> the latest, right? right? So there's a That's lot right. of new voters <laughs> since that. Oh, last yeah, I referendum. see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I see what you mean. Um, uh, there, there needs to be and there is uh, leadership from the Prime Minister down and, and Linda Burney and Pat Dodson and um, colleagues. Um, but the best version of this is, is an outcome driven by the people, not the politicians. This is a big chance. Um, it's, it's a massive chance for Australia to do the right and respectful thing, to do it in a spirit of progress and unity, uh, and it's not a big ask. It's basically saying, can we find a meaningful way for First Nations people to have a say in the issues that affect their communities, given they've been here for tens of thousands of years before we rocked up? Um, and we shouldn't overcomplicate that. No, um, it should have always been in the Constitution. It wasn't, and we now have a chance to put it into the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there'll be an element of national leadership, but we want this to be we, we want this to be something that the broader Australian community embraces uh, and owns. Final question: China could it surprise on the upside? It could. 
it could. Um, you know, you read a lot of the same stuff that I read uh, about the world um, and one of the things I think that has changed over the last few weeks is there's still a recognition that China's incredibly difficult right now. They just mm-hmm. had their worst quarter of non-pandemic growth I think for 50 years or something like that. Huge pressure on supply chains. Their workforce is under extreme pressure from this huge COVID wave. So so very difficult in China with consequences for us at the start of the year. But I think one of the things which is changing a little bit the expectations for the global economy, people are still expected to be really bad this year. Uh, but what will take maybe take some of the edge off that is a Chinese economy which recovers uh, a bit stronger and a bit quicker than what people might have thought three or six months ago. It's a huge and dynamic thing, isn't it? And yeah. it's, it's possible that could be the case, yeah. And yeah. That, that has strong implications for Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jim. Thanks. It's been really good having you on Democracy Sausage, the first one for the year. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the opportunity. And congratulations on the essay. Oh, yes, indeed. It's a, it's a great read. I recommend it. Thanks, Maria. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again at some stage and we'll uh, uh, all await eagerly that wellbeing budget and the next you know, next developments in, in that space because that's really interesting and exciting stuff. Great. Thanks heaps, Mark and Maria. Appreciate it. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. We'll be back next week, I think, I'm pretty sure, and, uh, and every week after that <laughs> for the rest of the year. So um, talk to you then. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.